Hi, I'm Indy Nidell, writer and host of the YouTube channel The Great War, and this is The Great War Podcast, where we, meaning either myself or Flo, talk to writers, archaeologists, historians, grad students, basically anybody that can give us new, different, or interesting information and perspectives on the First World War that we don't have in our actual channel. Now, today I have three guests, uh, an archaeologist and two military historians who are working on a project to excavate part of the Western Front. Uh, and my first guest is actually the head archaeologist. His name is Simon Verdehen. Um, if I didn't say that right, he'll tell me in just a second. Uh, Simon, can you say hi to everybody for a second? Hi there. Hi, everybody. I'm Sam. So, and, and, and say your last name just to make certain that I came close. Well, it's close. It's Simon Verdehem. Simon Verdehem. Okay. And, and you're in Bruges right now, yeah? Yeah. Our offices are in Bruges, so I'm at my desk. At me. And we're in, we're in Berlin through the magic of Skype. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit, before we get to the project, tell us a bit about who you are and some of your background and what you do. I've been an archaeologist for about eight, nine years now. Um, working on uh, battlefields on the Western Front, Ypres uh, region, for, I think, six years at the moment. Um, so uh, I've done several excavations uh, on uh, German and uh, British trenches, um, on the Ypres salient, also on the Messine Ridge, um, some on the Belgian Front near Dixmuyde. Um, bigger and smaller excavations, and um, well, it's my, my 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 passion, my thing. So, it's your thing, yeah. Um, well, do you refer to yourself as just an archaeologist, or as a First World War archaeologist, or do you limit yourself in that way, or do you? I mean, do you say since you do specialize on mm -hmm. this sort of stuff? Well, I I had a uh, general education on on classical archaeology, but the First World War has always been my my uh, my passion. Um, so I I really tried to get into that First World War archaeology. And I think the last four years I've done nothing else than uh, battlefield archaeology on the First World War battlefield. So, Which is interesting because most of the last four years I've done nothing else than the First World War. So, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, 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 no problem. Um, and yeah, I've done my share on, on classical archaeology, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Roman periods, uh, Middle Ages. Uh, which is interesting as well, of course, but yeah, uh, there are only a few in, in Flanders that really have that interest and are passionate about the First World War and archaeology in the professional field. Um, um, I'm one of them, and yeah, we've done, we've done a lot, and we have, we've have had some great results in the past years. Uh, as you said earlier, what, what we want to do is to um, excavate an, um, uh, a piece of the battlefield uh, on the Western Front. Uh, uh, it's on the edge of the village of Weitschate, uh, known as Whitesheet by the English-speaking uh, part of the world. And probably called Witscheid by me at several points during this channel, in case anybody out there sounds, thinks neither of those two names were familiar. Okay. So um, well, that's only a few miles uh, south of, of Ypres. And we um, discovered the site in 2015 uh, when we did some test trenching there because uh, developers want to build uh, 
a new housing estate there. This is the, the general way of working here in Flanders. If somebody wants to build, we go in and we see if there's archaeology preserved or not. In this case, it was exceptional. We knew that there was going to be something based on the aerial photographs and trench maps. Um, but the preservation was um, something I've nearly never seen before. Um, we had, um, well, first of all, deep, deep German trenches. The, they were preserved over a meter to a meter and a half. Um, and the special thing is that uh, um, almost half of the of the terrain never been plowed since the war. So during the war or, or before the war, there were some buildings and a mill. Um, and those buildings were incorporated into the trench system. And those buildings, the foundations of those buildings are still there. So when we will open up the, the terrain, we will actually see where the houses were, where the buildings were, and how they were incorporated into that trench system, how they were connected, if they were uh, cellars, if they were used as shelters as well. Um, but the whole use of, um, of the buildings into that trench system is something that we normally can't uh, investigate into in, in an archaeological excavation because most of the time they plow it away and only thing that we found are the bottoms of the trenches or but this combination is unique that's really cool why why, why would you suppose this one managed to be preserved <clears throat> i think the it's really close to the um to the town the center so um, that's maybe one reason why they don't do that much of um, uh, agriculture there. And I think uh, for the farmers it was difficult to plough it because of the big amount of, of bricks and foundations that were still there. I think they bumped into that too many times that they just stopped trying and just left it like it was and it was just a pasture and nothing else. Now, you, uh, you said this was discovered what, in 2015, right? And what have you been doing since then in, in terms of this project? In normal circumstances, we give an advice to the government and they write some minimal requirements on uh, what's the minimum um, part of excavation that has to be done. Uh, in Flanders, it's all commercial archaeology. So it's the owner or the developer that has to pay for the excavation. And of course, they don't do more than the government's is telling them to do, uh, but still it, they thought it costs uh, too much and they kind of froze their plans for a moment, well, for two years, uh, trying to find a way on how to overcome the costs. Um, but the site, because of its uniqueness and its uh, good preservation, uh, I couldn't, uh, how do you say it, I couldn't lose the thought about it. I, I kept on thinking about it and I, I wanted to do something about it. Um, and then in the beginning of 2017, I, I was on a trip with, with Rob and Peter and uh, through the, the battlefields of the First World War and we passed uh, Weitschaten and I, I showed them the site and that's when it started to grow that we, maybe we could do something uh, to, to raise funds to, to do the excavation on a proper way, not just with the minimal requirements, but an entire full-scale excavation so that nothing of this important piece of, of the battlefield was lost, because in normal circumstances we would have made, we would have had to make choices, uh, and some information would would have been lost anyway, because because of the choices we have to make, and we want to 
to research every part of the trench system, uh, every bomb crater, because we also found some uh, human remains during the test trenches, so we know that they are there. Um, and those guys that are left behind deserve a full-scale search of the site to be sure that not, none of them are left behind again. I wanted to ask you about the test trenches. How, when you say test trenches, how extensive or non-extensive were there? And what's the process for a test trench as opposed to once you get going on the regular excavation? Um, well, according to uh, our regulations, we always have to investigate about 12.5% of the, the entire site. Um, which have shown in the past that this is a good indication of the um, the importance of the site and to see if there is archaeology present or not. Um, we usually do that with test trenchings, uh, test trenches that are about two and a half, uh, two meters wide, maximum, and we place them every 15 meters, most of the time parallel, uh, and on that way we have a, a scan of the entire site. And then it's the archaeologist on site, the responsible archaeologist that decide or that give an advice to the government. Um, the entire site is important or it's just this corner that is important. And we advise that this should be invest um, investigated and excavated or not. When would you start the actual project? And what kind of preparations do you as an archaeologist have to do before you can start the actual digging? Because I don't really know a great deal about that. Well, we uh, scheduled uh, the actual excavation um, between mid-April and mid-July. So we estimated that at about 60 days, it's about 13 weeks uh, of time is needed to, to do the entire excavation. So uh, of preparation, there's not that much preparation uh, that we have to do in advance, but we have to make sure that all uh, paperwork is done, that everything is on site, and then we just start with an excavator um, taking off the topsoil, um, and then the features will appear, and then we start to investigate each feature separately and entirely. And what, what kind of a crew will you have for the full excavation? I mean, I don't know how many people it takes to work on one of these things. Well, there's always a minimum requirement, well, that's my opinion, of at least five persons, because you have the team leader with, who has to super, supervise the entire uh, working process, also the administrative, administrative part of it. Uh, you have people that do um, the GPS uh, mapping. Um, you have somebody that takes the photographs and do the, do the drawing. So each person has a separate... Um, task or an individual task and we're kind of um well we have a, a system that's first people come that do the digging then the come people come that do the photographs and the drawings then the gps mapping so everybody knows what he has to do so that's the minimum um of a crew that is needed and all extra hands to do some uh, digging is of course um always welcome because it helps you to do uh, the cleaning of the, the features more properly and more uh, thoroughly than... Of course, yeah. Well, we could send Flo down to do some of that. You can help out, yeah, Flo? Sure, yeah. we should all come. That'd be, we should go down for a few days, that'd be fun. Yeah. You could use us to dig for a few days, right? Yeah, you, you're welcome. That would be great. But that, that's, that's something that we offer at the Kickstarter as well, because we know people are, well, some people are enthusiastic about 
having such an experience. So it's one of our rewards on the Kickstarter is uh, that they can come and help and be part of the team. That sounds like a great one. I think that's the one that will, for us. Yeah. When we go through when we go through the rewards, I think that's definitely because we you know we've been traveling to a bunch of the last year to a bunch of the original locations and interviewing people, you know, different specialists and stuff, which has been a lot of fun. But we have not been there, and we kind of promised to next year because well. I don't know what's going to happen in the future of the war, of course. That's the thing about the channel. But it could end next year, and so I'd like to, like to see, see more of it before it actually does. Uh, you, you, you talked about mapping and photography and stuff. How much of that do you have to do in advance, like now? I mean, do you have, are you already doing aerial things, or is there somebody already doing the geophysical or geological scans? Or? Well, we had the Ghent University uh, that already did some geophysics on the site. Um, another department of the Ghent University is helping us with um, the mapping based on aerial photographs and um, on the trench maps. Uh, also uh, with the LIDAR, we are trying to, to see if there's anything that, that, that can be mapped. So we have an expectation map based on all those things. Um, Kiel University will do another scan geophysically before we start. Um, so this is what we do in advance so that we have an expectation and we know, okay, these are the features that will definitely be there. We have proven by the test trenching that most of them are there. And we actually proved that there is a lot more trenches or there are a lot more trenches than, uh, than, than we can see on the, the trench maps and on the aerials. So there are camouflage trenches, uh, maybe trenches from the 1914 battle that have been filled in again or uh, were disused and just not that visible on, anymore on the later photographs. That's all possible. And that's something that we see on a lot of the excavations in the area that you have an expectation map uh, based on those two primary sources. But... And um, when you go there, you go out there, you, you will see that there's always a lot more than, than there's actually, that actually can be seen on, the, on those photographs. And it must, be this, must have been the same for uh, the troops back then, because the aerials were for them uh, a reconnaissance as well. And they expected something, but there's always more that, is, that, that was covered up or um, camouflaged and it was visible from above. So. Yeah. It's very interesting that you say expectation map. By the way, my father's a geophysicist, so that's why I, I always tend to ask about things like that. Um, but, it, okay, you have an expectation map. Do you have a hope map, like things you really hope to find that, you know, that maybe there's not that good a chance that you'll find, but is there anything specific you'd think, wow, this would be, this would be the greatest? Well, uh, for this particular site, we have maybe, we can call it a hope map that, um, because we know uh, the village is, um, there's a lot of tunneling uh, on, in, in the ridge and, and beneath the village, uh, underneath the village. So we, we don't know if, and that's uh, really possible, that the cellars of the buildings were connected to the, the village with, with tunneling. We know that tunnels passed uh, on the street very close to the site. Um, but we have no maps so far of tunnels under the side, but it's possible that tunnels coming from the front entering the village through our, uh, um, our excavation area. So this is something that we, we hope to find out and, and see if the, then well, we have the fighting trenches, 
Um, they are connected with the buildings by uh, communication trenches and possibly uh, the buildings uh, are connected with the, with the village itself by tunnels. And that's something that we hope to find that there are cellars that are connected to, to the village. Now, um, after the actual digging, the actual field work, how long do you imagine it would take to process the results and be able to present to the world what your findings are? Is this something that takes months or years or weeks or? Several months, and we think about well, depends, of course, on on the amount of artifacts that we that we will find. Um, we have several steps, uh, several steps in the post processing uh, uh, work. That's the mapping, do all the mapping of the different layers that we found, the cleaning of the artifacts, then um, the inventory of the the artifacts, and then of course the writing of your. Uh, of the things that we that we found, so all together will I think, if we can continue, if we have put it all together and with a big effort, two to three months, and we will have a good over overview of of the results, and then uh, we can present something to the world. All right, Simon. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I think it's really cool to get an archaeological perspective about all this, which is something rather unique for us. Well for anything like this. Um, and if you're already interested in the project, or even if you're not, go to dig, it's dighill80.com, and you can check out the whole Kickstarter thing. All right, and now I have my next guest up here, uh, Robin Schaefer. Uh, Robin, are you there? Okay, I'm, I'm Robin Schaefer. I'm a German military historian, and um, um, I am in Germany at the moment, um, sitting in a car. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm one of the project leaders um, of the Hill 80 archaeological project. Now, um, and what sort, of, what sort of background do you have? Uh, you, you say you're a military historian. I have no idea how old or young you are, or if you fo focus on <laughs> if you focus on the war that we focus on. Do we have to no, talk we, about my we, age? We don't. We don't have to. You sound like you're 17. <laughs> yeah, well, I am actually. No, I'm 42. Okay. And when, as a military historian. Do you do you have a specific focus on uh, this war or any other war or, or? Well, generally, I specialize in German military history from the from the times of the um, of the wars of the liberation to the Napoleonic Wars to the end of the Second World War. So quite broad. Okay, uh, and I can see why this project then would appeal to you. Um, now we talked with um, we talked with Simon about the archaeological archaeological aspects of everything and stuff. Um, It'd be nice if you could tell us more about the about Hill 80 from a German perspective uh, and about the German army there and what was going on with them, so people have an idea more about well what we're actually looking for here. So Hill 80 is part well is is, is situated in the village of Wiechater in Flanders and it's uh, on top of the Messine Ridge. And it was taken by the German army, or better said, by the Bavarian army, because there was no such thing as the German army um, in, in the First World War, um, by the Bavarian contingent of the German army uh, in November 1914. Now, um, that's, the, that's very interesting that you say that. All right, you must be really angry that I refer to the German army. But I do refer to Bavarians and Prussians separately and, and all the different, the different leaders. I do, actually. <laughs> so, um, um, so, so forgive me for that. Um, now, who, who actually served there? Um, which, which units under which leaders? Um, was it the same 
throughout the war, or did that change? And just it just so people get an idea of the whole evolution of the war here. The, the village, the village itself, or that that part of the of the Messine of the Messine Ridge remained in Bavarian hands more or less um, throughout the war, with a few exceptions. But it was taken by the Sixth Bavarian Reserve Division in November 1914. Um, then they consolidated their positions on top of the ridge um, and stayed there for well, well, one and a half, one and a half or two years um, until they lost it again. Um, by then, they they were already Prussians on the ridge, but they lost it again in June 1917. Now, you, as a military historian rather than as an archaeologist, what are you hoping, like best case scenario or worst case scenario? What are you hoping to find out of this? And what are you hoping to see and, and, and to tell to the world public, the people that are going to see this? Well, uh, to, to, to be very honest with you, um, uh, personally, um, I try or I really hope that we are able to find um, or to confirm what uh, Simon um, has found during the text, uh, test excavations in 2015, which is a substantial German mass grave for burial pit. So I really hope that we will be able to... Um, to confirm that there is such thing on the ridge and um, in the best case, bring some of the lads who are buried there home and return their identities to them. That is my main goal in that excavation. Well, that's quite a good goal, actually. Um, and what is your actual active participation in like the physical part of this? I mean, are we, I assume you'll be working with the actual digging or do you? are you more behind the scenes doing analysis and... Well, I will, during... During the dig, I will be behind the scenes to look at objects, to help to identify objects, to put them into their historical context. So I won't be wielding a shovel or anything. Um, but at the moment, uh, my main job is um, I'm going to the archives in Munich. I'll have, I have looked at, uh, at um, period maps, trench maps, positional maps. Um, I look at war diaries of the units who fought there, um, always keeping an eye on a mention of, of a grave um, because the, the units that fought on or in Miss, uh, in Bichat in 1914 suffered horrendous casualties. And 99% um, of them don't have a known grave, so they are all there. So they are still buried in the village, um, and that is what I'm keeping an eye on at the moment. Now, um, I understand, of course, we're, it's a German strong point that's to be excavated, but I suppose you'll be finding the material and, and remains from both, from all sides, yes? Uh, Yes, in, interestingly, in, in November 1914, it was quite an international uh, battle that raged on that on that ridge. Um, when the barbarians attacked, they were facing French troops, British troops, uh, Indian troops, um, even a few Belgians. Uh, so it was the potentially that we will find, uh, or that we could potentially find objects uh, relating to all those nations. And and what has your role been so far this year during like the the Kickstarter campaign and the uh, the campaign leading up to hope well hope, hopefully you'll be successful of course. Um, what kind of preparations do you have to do in advance for 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 this, or is it more of just a waiting game at this point? No, it's not a waiting game. Um, just to give you one example, next week I'll be going down to Munich again for three days to the war archives, and I'll have a look at uh, some more documents of uh, the Sixth Bavarian Reserve Division and the 17th um, Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment, which fought there in 1914. Um, I found a few documents, which I haven't seen yet, which supposedly relate to a major burial um, uh, in the village of Ichate in November 1914, but I don't know where, so I will look at those. 
Um, I will look at a few war diaries, um, make some translations, transcri transcriptions, um, reprodu we'll reproduce some maps if, if available. Um, and um, if, when I'm not doing that, I'm uh, actively engaged in running the social media um, relating to, to Hill 80, so the Facebook account, the Twitter account. <laughs> we are actually only three three people there, so it's 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 really it has really taken over our lives. Um, so we we still need to do our, our proper jobs in inverted commas. So we spend all our all our free time trying to raise enough money to um, to open that site up. So can you explain a little bit more about the process in the archives? I mean, is it like a library where each regiment has a shelf and it's easy to find? Is it badly well organized? You know. Well, in a, in a very that that is quite fitting actually. It is a little bit like a library. Um, there's a kind of a very very basic register of what you can hope to find there with very simple labeling, which is available online, for example. So you you have a basic idea of what you are looking for. You can uh, you can digitally reserve certain kinds of documents uh, there, and then you go there, and a lady goes into a large, into an enormous archive, and um, gets you the files you wanted to look at, and um, then you can see if, uh, if, the, if the file holds what you were hoping it contained. And how extensive are the archives? I mean, I'm, I'm... Oh, they are quite, quite extensive. Um, the, the Bavarian records of the First World War are more or less complete. So um, from war diaries to maps, uh, individual unit records, uh, photographs, um, whatever you can imagine um, is there. Um, so it's 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 quite massive, and um, most well, we can we we don't even we are not entirely sure what is there um, at all because no one has has cited it completely yet. There are still boxes which which contain folders which have never been opened with maps, and um, it's enormous. It's quite enormous. Well, that is the that is the that is the, one of the major problems you face as a, as a World War One German military historian that that most of the records of the main contingent of the German army, the Prussian contingent, has been destroyed um, during a bombing raid in the Second World War. So um, all Prussian records are gone. Whereas the records from Württemberg, from Bavaria, from Baden, uh, from Saxony are still there, installed locally and complete. Can a mere mortal access these? I know you just said that some was some stuff was available online, but is this open to the public or only open to historians or scholars or how does that work? No, it's open. It's open. It's open to the public. You can, uh, if you go, for example, on the website of the Bavarian State Archives, there's a search function. If you find anything that interests you, you can send them an email, tell them that you want to see that that document at um, then they make an you make an appointment go there and look at it no problem it's really cool actually and i you know just personally you know we film in berlin and i live in stockholm but i'm in i'm in munich about every 8 weeks or so so i should actually do some independent stuff down there just just for for our channel but enough about me um, now uh, for you Personally, and as a German military historian, what about this specific project is so remarkable uh, compared to, I don't know, s similar or like projects also on the Western Front that you may have, may or may not have taken part? Well, first of all, as, as Simon has already, already told you, um, the, the site itself is quite unique as it, has, as it hasn't been worked on, built on, or even been touched since the end of the First World War. 
So um, that is that makes it that on its own makes it very very unique. Uh, another thing from 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 my personal point of view is um, that for the first time during this centenary and probably even before, this will be a project that will look across the barbed wire, even in archaeological terms, um, into um, the enemy's camp, so to say. So we have seen archaeology on Australian sites, we have seen archaeology on Canadian sites, on British sites, but so far no one has actively and knowingly opened something that has been in German hands for, for many, many, many years. Um, and that, that on its own, I think, is, is, is quite special, unique and important um, because you can't really talk about history when you are not looking at both sides of the barbed wire. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And I love that it was never really plowed over and everything so that there's, well... You know, hopefully, even more than we imagine. There's going to be there when you guys. Well, at the at the moment, people seem to be walking their dogs there. That's what it's there for at the moment, I think. Okay, Robin Schaefer, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and it's it's fascinating to have uh, a German military history perspective on this at, at a German excavation site. Um, so why don't you say goodbye to all the people out there in podcast land? <laughs> Okay, guys, um, uh, goodbye. Thank you for listening to me. Um, and uh, please, please, please support us um, um, with your, with, on social media and um, open your wallets, please, um, because otherwise a lot of important archaeology will be lost forever. And that would be a great shame. All right, well, thank you very much, and we'll be back with uh, Peter Doyle. Uh, my third guest today is, I guess, the third member of this triumvirate, uh, Peter Doyle. Uh, Peter, first of all, thank you very much for taking time to, to be with us today. My pleasure to be here. Now, uh, before we get into your work uh, and thoughts on the project, can you tell people a bit about who you are and what you do and where you are? Sure. So I'm uh, based at London South Bank University, and I am a military historian. A particular interest of mine is the use of terrain and the impact of terrain on the outcome of military campaigns. So it's really important, whilst looking at uh, the project we're working on, to understand how and why the troops were fighting there and what kind of controlled their impact. Okay. Well, um, uh, well, let's get into uh, let's get into the terrain right off the bat around uh, around Hill 80 and stuff. Um, how did it affect things for from say a British perspective or an Allied perspective, since it was so international? So the, the most important thing about uh, Hill 80 is it's part of a major fortress. So when the Germans arrived in 1914 and wrested control of the hill tops, uh, they were able to look down over the, onto the city of Ypres and to control what was going down down there on the plain. So then that anything that the Allies did, the British, the French, anybody that was moving in that area would be under direct observation of the Germans. So the Germans took the, hit, the hilltop, the ridgetop, they took that to hold because what they wanted to do was to keep on the defensive, to ensure that the Allies were held there while they fought their main uh, enemies in the east. So it was really important for them to construct really strong points. They built into the line bits of ruined houses and homes, uh, destroyed villages, but they also used all the natural topography. They used uh, the ridges, they used the valleys, they used the spurs of that land. And so they really constructed a fortress that was almost impregnable, at least that's what the Germans felt at the time. Well, it turned out to not be entirely impregnable because they didn't hold it forever and ever, right? Um, and, and when it did change hands again, then what, what about after that? 
to turn it around. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, the British do did, of course, to get rid of the gems off the top of the ridge was to plan it for two years, to, to dig a whole series of mines, and those mines were then exploded on the 7th of June 1917 continuously. They were put together. It was a single explosion, if you like, of 19 mines, and that, together with a coordinated bombardment and an infantry assault, meant that the Germans really reeled back in uh, obviously disarray, they weren't expecting that, and were then driven off the top of the ridge. The problem is, of course, is that the Germans, from the Allied perspective, was that the Germans were well organised, well equipped, well able to deal with such uh, aspects, and they were, again, to lose that ridge in 1918. So although the British swept the Germans off the ridge in 1917, when the Germans fought back in 1918, again, that ridge was the scene of a lot of action. And so what you're going to find or hoping to find in this project is is a lot of a lot of material artifacts and remains from both sides or from from several armies actually yeah, so what we're doing uh, with our excavation, which you can obviously see on hill80.com is that what we're going to to do is to uncover a, a unique remnant of that fortress. It is a really unique uh, component because unlike other parts of the battlefront which have been built on or disturbed by ploughing, this has not been touched and it is right at the front line and it's part of this fortress that the Germans constructed. So it's looking over, you can see from the dig site, you can see the city of Ypres and we know that underneath that field there are really deep trenches that form the front line of the, the fortification. There are buildings which were hard fought over and we know that the Germans who fought there in 1914 and wrested it from the grasp of the Allies and held on to it, uh, they paid for it with their lives, and those men probably lie there uh, in that ground uh, in a mass grave, for example. The Allies, obviously, to take that ground, they had to fight hard. They had to fight up a slope. They had to use a whole range of techniques, including the mine warfare. So encompassed in one small field, we expect to find not only the front line, we also expect to find all of the material that was used in those trenches, and importantly, we're also going to be recovering uh, probably the, the fallen of both sides who uh, fought to, to wrest this from each other's graphs. It's going to be quite an intense experience working there. Now, and what is your participation in the active phase of this, assuming that you, you get the funding, thanks to everybody out there in podcast land, that you get the funding to do this. What is your, when you're actually, you'll be part of the actual dig or will you be doing an analytics or a little bit of both or how does that work? So this is a, this is a three-way team, uh, international, as you know, with colleagues from uh, Belgium, from Germany and we from Britain. So we're going to be involved, all three of us are going to be involved in all aspects of this dig here. If we get the crowdfunding, and we, we would hope we would do that, then we're going to be part of an international team. We're going to have people on site. We're going to have uh, professional archaeologists who are going to be working on this. It's going to be a really intense period of gathering data. And we're then going to, together, we're going to be analysing what we find, because this is really going to drive our understanding of trench warfare. We're going to find lots of new information which we will combine with the archive materials, and I reckon we can have something that's incredibly special, really unique, and also something which will inform battlefield archaeology for some time to come. 
And in what format will you present all this to the public once you've finished, once you've finished the analyzing and everything? So what we're going to do, obviously, as part of our commitment to the crowdfunding, we're going to have a, a number of meetings. So people can sign up to that on uh, digpillat.com uh, dig and they're going to be able to come along to, to our meetings, both in Belgium and in London, to hear the kind of initial results that we found. We're obviously also committed to making sure that this is going to be available through our website. Uh, we're probably going to be ensuring that it is available through um, for web sources, uh, films, but also from an academic perspective to ensure that it is written down, that we have proper reports, that we have resources that will stand in good stead for 10, 15, 20 and beyond into the future. Okay, and, and now... How did you actually get involved in this project from the beginning? Uh, well, I got involved in this through um, my association with my colleagues, uh, Rob Schaefer and Simon Verdigan. Um, we met through Twitter, which is one of the powers of this this important uh, component. Twitter allows us all to connect. And so I was involved with Simon Verdigam on a, another dig looking at machines. So rather another part of this front line. So that was a dig that Simon had been carrying out with his professional colleagues, an intensive dig, a rescue dig because of the, the work that we're doing there to, to put in drains. So they found amazing things on that general front line. So from that, Simon and I were able to, to work together. I've worked with with, with Rob, we've written a book called Fritz and Tommy, looking at the British and the German experiences of the frontline life during the First World War. And so all three of us bring really interesting and parallel and supportive perspectives. So we're hoping to be able to look at this not from a one-sided perspective, but to look at it from the German, the British, the Belgian and other allies who were involved in this frontline. So it should be a really exciting engagement, really exciting piece of research. I think so too. Um, and of course, we talk, we're talking to Rob about the German perspective and archives and all there. Um, now, as not just a military his, historian, but as a terrain specialist, what sort of background do you have in those two things? I mean, did you study both history and geophysics? Or, or, uh, or? Yeah, so, so my background is as a geologist. And so what I do is I bring a, a somewhat unique perspective. I was trained as a geologist in order to understand and examine military terrain. And over the last 20, 25 years, I've combined that with the military historical side in order to look at what the archives, the aerial photographs, the maps, the personal accounts are telling us about the impact of that terrain. So I've studied terrain in both World War Wars. I've looked at everything from and beyond. I've looked at everything from the Apache Wars, for example, of the 1890s through to the Battle of the Bulge and the Korean War. So what I'm, I'm trying to do is to take the, the landscape, the terrain, the topography, understand what that is like, and then, and then place upon that layers of personal history to see how those soldiers, if you like, were fighting over there, how the tanks and weapons were affected by the terrain. And I think uh, doing that gives us a fairly unique perspective. It also allows me to connect with the archaeologists who are actually absolutely engaging with the ground conditions and other military historians who are looking at the layers of history, the layers of archive materials. So it gives us a real perspective of the battlefront. And it would be very interesting to see how the terrain affected, say, the 1914 armies as opposed to the 1917, 1918 armies, because, of course, the armies had changed so much. No, I was just going to add to that that the most important thing is that as the Germans arrived in 1914, of course, they were, they were able to choose the positions. It was hard fought. But once they chose the positions and were able to engage with that terrain and build this fortress, 
that became more and more difficult for the Allies to break. So it is very interesting to see the evolution of the trench systems and the evolution of the trench warfare. And that's something that we would hopefully be able to examine in our excavation. What sort of uh, preliminary work are you doing like around this stage before you know, the actual active field work? Happens. So what we did, of course, is that Simon and, and his colleagues were able to do test trenching, which examined and de detailed some of the some of the aspects of the trench trench system that we have there. So we know it exists. What I'm doing is looking at the terrain aspects. The, the for example, the Allies did a wide range of mapping exercises, drill holes, to to find out what the conditions are beneath the surface. And this did have a major impact on the Germans. Certain parts of the line, the Germans would not be able to dig very deep trenches. We know that deep trenches are existing here, and that's all down to the subsurface layer. So I'm looking at that and considering that. We're also going to be working with geophysicists from other universities to try and see what their imaging of the subsurface is about, you know, using the geophysics. And then we're going to be looking at the, the archive resources of the engineers and of the soldiers themselves to see what their perspectives are, both during and after the battle, to get the kind of post-battle uh, considerations of what the conditions were like. Oh, that was fascinating. My, my father, as I told Rob, my father's a geophysicist, actually, so I'm, I, I guarantee he's going to, that's why I grew up in Texas, of course, he works with oil. <laughs> but uh, I'm no sure. No oil in white sheet, I'm afraid. Pardon? No, yeah. No oil in white sheet. <laughs> he might still enjoy it somehow. He might still enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Um, is there anything you're hoping or expecting to find in dealing with mining warfare and tunneling warfare? Sure. So one of the things that, that happens when we get the evolution of trenches, of course, is that we, we not only have the frontline trench, but we have the rear trenches. We have the interconnection of what's known as communication trenches, which allow soldiers to move from the rear to the front. We also get the opportunity to dig tunnels. So soldiers there were digging tunnels both to protect themselves, but also to move around subsurface and also, thirdly, to see what's going, what the Allies are doing. Now, the Allies had dug a whole series of tunnels beneath the, the front line, so beneath the German front line. So what are the Germans would be doing, of course, would be trying to listen out for that, digging their own tunnels, trying to intercept what the, what the British were doing. So there was a kind of subsurface war. So what we would hope we would find would be some of these, maybe entrances into deeper dugouts, maybe uh, links into tunnels, maybe subsurface uh, tunnels which allow the Germans to move from their rear areas into the frontline areas. And so a lot of this information uh, we could find through the geophysics, through direct excavation. And as I said, this has never been looked at in this area, so we don't know what we're going to find. Not all of it would have been mapped. Uh, some of it would be, I think, some unusual finds for us, but we still hope that we might be able to find these kind of tunnels, these entrances, these dugouts, that kind of thing. Is, is the mapping going on already, the, 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 the geophysical stuff, or is that stuff that you have to wait till the... That's going to be, once we get, this is part of our initiative for the, the crowdfunding opportunities. We have partners, so we have partners from the University of Ghent, uh, partners from the University of Kiel in the UK, who are going to be engaging with us to assist us with the geophysics. So once we start getting involved in the crowdfunded dig, when we start doing the digging, we're going to have geophysicists working there to see if they can pick up signals that would identify tunnels at depth. And that would be quite an exciting thing to be able to determine. Yeah, that would be really, really cool. Well, we're, we, we're eagerly anticipating the results of this. And Flo and I have already told uh, Rob and Simon that we're, we'd like, we're gonna 
hopefully come down for a few days during the actual digging and do some filming for us there and talk to you guys in person and maybe do a little work for you. You can put us to work. That would be excellent because, or, you know, obviously anything we can get out there because we've got a public duty to make sure everybody is aware of this and anything you can do with your Magnuson website would be fantastic for us. Uh, well, thank you very much, Peter. Um, it was, again, it was really nice of you to take time to be here. Um, and I, I believe the direct link to the Kickstarter is DigHill80.com. Is that correct? That's right. So if you want to, to get involved in this, if you want to take part in this and have your piece of engagement with this, then definitely visit DigHill80.com. And there you can see all the rewards that are available to you. We'd love to have you on board. Well, I suppose, um, especially for us, the biggest reward of this would actually be to see it done because it, it is important to get that out there. So I hope everyone out there checks out your work in progress and your work in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and as a kind of invisible bonus, if you decide to support the project and you end up being on site, you can also meet me and Flo and maybe Tony and Marcus or Julian or whichever of the team we drag over there to, uh, to actually make history, right? Okay, well, uh, thank you, Peter, and also a big thanks to Rob and to Simon. Very good luck to you, and, and thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, you'll see, you'll hear us again soon with more stuff from, from myself or from Flo.